The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya, your regular Curbsiders Teach host, and I'm joined by a special guest, a returning producer and tonight's super co-host, Dr. Francis Yu. In today's episode, we'll discuss all things assessment in medical education with Dr. Ariane Tarani. Before we get started with that, Francis, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Ira. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Tarani, tonight, and we cover the role of assessment and the learning environment and how to develop an optimal approach that is both equitable and learner-centered. Dr. Ariane Tarani, PhD, is a professor of medicine and education scientist in the Center for Faculty Educators at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She is the Director for Program Evaluation and Education Continuous Quality Improvement for the School of Medicine. Dr. Tarani is the founding co-director of the University of California Center for Climate Health and Equity. Dr. Tarani's research has focused on the role of assessment and learning environment practices in perpetuating educational disparities, and she studies interventions aimed at creating equity during health professions education and assessment. Her research underscores the important role of solutions built on exemplars of success in contributing to equity. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's, let's get to it. it. Hi, Dr. Tarani. Is it okay for this episode if we call you Ariane? Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and wanted to start with some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little better. Can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Uh, sure. I am an educational evaluator and researcher with a deep interest in issues of societal justice, particularly in education and then also in the environment. And that's a story for another time. I love a great movie and I love great songs sung mostly by happy birds in the spring. That's great. And you mentioned a great movie and a great song. What is a book, movie, show, or album that you've recently enjoyed? Um, movie, The House of Gucci. I can't tell you that it was the most pleasant movie to watch, but I do think it was an eye-opener learning about the dark and um, sad stories surrounding the history of a name that we just kind of have heard pervade society for decades. It was just somehow very eye-opening. You know, Ariana, I saw that on a plane that I was recently on, and I was like, I should watch this. Lady Gaga is in this. And whenever she's in a movie, I ball for hours, like um, <laughs> The Star is Born. So now I have to watch it. Thank yeah. you. It's, it's, it's very eye-opening. Okay. All right. I got to gotta open my eyes. And speaking of opening eyes and maybe kind of getting feedback, um, we were wondering if you could tell us maybe some meaningful advice or the best piece of advice or feedback that you've received along the way in your career. 
Actually, I'm going to take a slightly different note on that one. You know, actually, the most meaningful piece of feedback that I ever got was from a professor who told me that I was not worthy of a higher degree. Um, I was not cut out for graduate school. The thing is, it wasn't directly meaningful in the way that you would think, but it was life-changing because it made me so incredibly angry. And I was already driven toward my goal, but that comment drove me to prove that professor wrong. So it was very meaningful feedback that really did affect the course of my career because I landed up doing exactly what I wanted to do and proving that person wrong. Yeah, take that person, whoever that was. (laughs) Um, Along those lines, it sounds like that advice or feedback was pretty life-changing. Are there any other experiences or community engagement work that you've been involved with that you have felt really impacted your career? You know, it wasn't not nothing specific. I think there are a lot of these sort of community engagement or work that I do with learners on a research team that each has given a lot of meaning to what I do and has validated why I do what I do. But I do think that at some point in my career, I began to realize that the personal and the professional melded together and I had to really be able to speak to both and what I did. And so one sort of main change, one one thing that I did was beginning to incorporate into my teaching. And I, I actually teach learners. I teach medical students. I teach residents. I teach faculty. I also live a slightly different life where I actually educate the community. I do a lot of community education events. And one thing I began to do was really bring into my teaching my identity Why is it that I am choosing to teach what I'm choosing to teach? Why am I here? And I think that automatically has laid the groundwork for my learners to understand why I'm coming at what I'm coming at from a certain perspective. I love that, Ariane. Thank you. You're kind of infusing your identity into and your purpose into your work. And I I really love and I hope more of us can do that. And we'll hear, you know, more about your passions and your purposes uh, going forward. But maybe, Frances, for the sake of time, do you have any picks of the week this week? Oh, sure. My pick of the week is actually by a guest that was just on Curbsiders Teach by Dr. Andre Monsoor. It's his book, Frameworks for Internal Medicine. I'm actually buying like a seventh copy on Amazon to gift to another learner. It's a great book on building diagnostic frameworks and building differentials. What about you, Ira? So my pick of the week is a book I read on a plane, uh, literally from West Coast to East Coast and finished it because I was so just totally mesmerized by it. But this is called The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. I hope I'm saying that correctly by Jamie Ford. It was a book of the month pick for a few of my friends, and I have to tell you all that it blew my mind. I was crying. I was laughing. It talks about the story of basically intergenerational trauma and kind of how experiences that have happened centuries ago has transmitted and uh, gone through different generations. And they specifically talk about the daughters of Afang Moy. And uh, Jamie Ford does an incredible job of also weaving in epigenetics and kind of um, treatments around that and the latest evidence. And just, I was so fascinated. And I think we know a lot about how trauma is kind of passed on to generations. And this book really just describes that through the story of the this lineage. And so I just, I was totally transfixed basically in this book. Wow. I'll totally have to check it out. That sounds like such a moving, such an emotional and awesome book. 
Yeah, maybe like once you're done listening or reading about frameworks from Andre, you can kind of switch over and be like, what's what's happening with the Moy family right now? All right. Well, Francis, do you want to launch us into our case for today? Yeah, let's do it. John is a faculty advisor for Sean, a third-year medical student who just started his clerkship rotations. Sean emailed John to meet this week because he is worried about his upcoming shelf exam in neurology. Sean passed all of his pre-clerkship exams. They were mostly made up of open-ended questions and a few multiple-choice questions, so he is worried about how he will do an entirely multiple-choice closed-ended question test. He has also felt that the questions he has asked on rounds allow him time to think, versus the shelf will be more like the step exams, where he has to go quickly and he feels like he's just regurgitating facts. Sean is hoping that his mentor, John, will have some advice. Thank you, Francis. Well, Ariane, wow, a lot of things here are going Mm -hmm. on for Sean and John, not to mention their rhyming names. Um, I wonder if you would be able to orient us to how you think kind of broadly about assessment for health professions learners, and in this case, for Sean and John as medical students. Well, there's a lot of different things going on in that case. Um, And I think to your question, Ira, you know, um, the way I think about assessment really has to do with how assessment gets at competence. I mean, I do think ultimately that's what it comes down to, but there's a lot more. That's very simplistic, right? There's a lot more that goes into that. So I think about assessment shifts, evolutions, and changes that have been around for years. You know, in medical education in particular, my career began about 20 so years ago, but the the field of assessment has been around for approximately 80 years um, in medical education. And we have seen many assessment modalities that have come and gone, and not even necessarily gone, but sometimes evolved. So for example, you know, assessment modalities that have completely disappeared have included things like the very dated patient management problems from decades ago. I don't know if you are all familiar with that, but it was really supposed to be a way of getting at a learner's clinical reasoning sort of walking through a case and how they would approach that case step by step in this in this problem. And it turned out to really have very little validity evidence and was so time consuming, we were done away with it. And then we see some assessment modalities that have evolved. So for example, the objective structured clinical exams, which really began as a way primarily of getting at communication skills, a little bit of patient care, but primarily communication skills among international medical graduates, and then were used to eventually assess every learner, particularly medical students, but also residents, and now have really moved away from being a high-priority assessment, really more for formative feedback and assessment, which was determined really by our boards moving away from using that as a primary assessment source. So in relation to the case, right, you know, you have a student here who really sees the multiple choice questions as a way of getting at their deep knowledge or their deep thinking. And the OEQs potentially is not, or open-ended questions is probably not doing that as much. But I think there's a lot of layers to that. You know, there is research that a good multiple choice question can get at depth of knowledge, can get at extrapolation, transferability of knowledge to a new setting. But there's also a lot of evidence that it really can't do that. It's about regurgitation of of medical knowledge facts. And um, there is a lot of recent evidence which really points to the fact that a well-designed OEQ question can actually do a very good job at not only getting your learner to teach back or articulate what they've learned, 
but also really be able to provide examples of their own that show how they've taken that knowledge and applied it to a new situation. So I think basically to say that I do see assessment as a way of getting at what learners know, coming at it from different ways, using different modalities to assess for competence, for an individual competency, and keeping in mind an evaluation, uh, an assessment system that really thinks about adapting to what we learn about in evidence and in research on assessment practice. Oh, wow. Thanks, Arianne. That's, you know, a long history of assessment. So you've mentioned a lot of different ways to assess our learners. Could you maybe touch upon, you know, what are the goals of these different types of assessment? Or even in our case here, you know, what would be the ideal way to assess the medical student in this scenario? So there is no ideal way. (laughs) I don't have a prescription for that. But I do think that having to really make sure that we have assessment points that are both formative and summative. So we are making sure that we are providing feedback along the way about how a learner is doing, that idea of feedback for learning, and then also ensuring that there are multiple opportunities for that summative assessment, that assessment on where you are at that point in time and whether where you are relates to where you're supposed to be are in alignment. And I think like I alluded to earlier, just having multiple ways of Multiple ways and multiple opportunities do help us get at that. Ariane, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a history lesson. Um, you mentioned kind of various, you know, MCQs or open-ended questions, OEQs. Like, how did we get to even having those questions? I'm hearing that the purpose of assessment is to get a sense of what the learner knows, kind of address different competencies, but. You know, was there a group of people who sat around in 1801 and said, let's just do a bunch of MCQs today? You know, like I I wonder how how this actually began and um, if you can kind of open our eyes to how in the world we got here, basically. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's been very much reflective of, of shifts in society. I don't actually know the history of the development of the multiple choice questions. So I will look that up and I will get back to you after on that one. But generally speaking, how medical education in particular, and I even think education in the other professions has been, has really been responsive to what's happening in society. So what what are the needs? What are the healthcare needs of patients and populations? And are we assessing for that content uh, or that skill that's needed? Um, and then I think it's really been um, a trend in developing new assessments and ways of doing things that uh, has kind of, it's been more trial and error. Like there's been a gap, for example, in understanding, you know, for so the medical knowledge assessment, very simple, came to be because there were concerns about whether or not learners knew their content. Very simple. And there was many ways of doing it. And honestly, the little about the history I know of MCQs is that they were the easy, quick way to get at medical knowledge. And that is why they came to be. And that's why they're still used. It's very, very, um, Logical. It makes sense. And there is, and MCQs do when well designed, they have good validity, good construct validity. They do really get at medical knowledge. But then, you know, there have been other shifts and trends, right? So for example, I spent, uh, well, I, st- I still do, but not so much as I used to, um, working in the area of professionalism. So my Really, my career started out with looking at, well, there were a couple of important cases, um, court cases that occurred in medicine in the 90s and, and early 2000s that really, you know, shook up the profession 
you know, the unprofessional physician that was caught doing something wrong. And the question was, well, why didn't medical schools know about it? You know, medical schools should have caught that early on. So some of the early work I did, for example, was going back into 100 years of student records at multiple institutions with the research team I was a part of, and looking to see in those student files, was there a way of knowing which physicians would have been disciplined based on their data? And that research really led the way for why we even have the professionalism competency, why we even feel professionalism is important to assess. Because there were signals along the way and they were never caught because all we assessed for in the, you know, early part of the century was medical knowledge. So, or the latter century, not this century, last century. So, well, Ariane, I think you just gave us a perfect example of how assessment structures adapt. And I wonder, especially given kind of the new competency around professionalism, and I wonder if we're trying to make sure that competent physicians are graduating medical school, how do we create a system of assessment of that competence or competencies that can adapt and that can kind of give us insight into how trainees, learners and health professions are also adapting or generating new knowledge and are working in complex systems? Yeah. Um, to have that sort of ongoing way of ensuring that we do have good assessment systems in place, assessment systems that get at core priorities and that are well executed and well done. You do need good educational research, educational assessment research that helps us understand that. And then you have to have an evidence to practice pathway that really brings that evidence in to practice. Make sure that schools are looking at what's out there, implementing what's out there, and are learning from their own experiences and disseminating. And I know that that's a very broad response to the question, but I will say that assessment is one of those areas in medicine and in medical education that has had uh, quite a lot of resources um, and funding bestowed toward it because of the fact that it plays this important role in ensuring that a graduate is ready for practice. And so I do think that cycle, that ability to have institutions or groups bring in what we know implement, study, and further add to that literature is actually very key to that practice. I think almost every institution nationally has a group or a person who can do that. But I do think the depth at which it's done is sometimes overlooked. It is a lot of work. So sometimes schools just don't have the resources to do the in-depth work that's needed to add to that body of science or evidence around assessment. So it's great that you talk about this expansive body of research. I feel like sometimes in medical education, we don't feel that there is a large body of research supporting certain things that we're doing. But in this area of research, are there any other key ingredients needed for an assessment structure to adapt? For example, in our case here, with Sean coming to John noting a few different methods of assessment and his emotional reactions. Can you orient us to the various methods he's mentioning? Are these formative or summative assessments? Yeah. Well, we we don't know from the case, but you know, usually the shelf exam is a summative. It's a summative assessment. It really does at many institutions, um, make or break your grade, your final grade for that particular clerkship. So when you have an assessment like that, that really has significant consequences for your 
overall performance for your future opportunities because in medicine, the grade you get on that exam at most institutions does determine the grade you will get on that clerkship, which then in turn determines what are your opportunities after graduating from medical school and starting residency. Yeah, so I think to answer your question, it really just depends on the context. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities for exams like the shelf exam. There are many types of exams like that that are offered at schools that are really just for formative purposes. They are um, executed to make sure the learner can practice, take a test, see how you're doing, get at your answers. And and that really is the um, the kind of assessment that we we really do see shift the way a learner learns and grows. Um, and I also want to say that a summative assessment is not necessarily always a negative thing, so I hope it didn't come across that way. I think what makes a summative assessment very difficult is when it's a one-time thing. It's the only thing for which there are massive consequences after that assessment. And I think that's when it becomes a little bit of a tricky situation for the learner. And Ariane, that's super helpful to kind of differentiate the purposes of the summative and formative assessments. And I wonder, you had kind of mentioned, you know, assessment for learning and kind of what that uh, phrase means. And maybe you could kind of orient us to uh, the maybe other phrase that I think a lot of people talk about, which is a focus on assessment for mastery or kind of, excuse me, or for performance. And so maybe you can orient us to those different phrases and how I just butchered them, but maybe you will um, say them uh, much better and just kind of what they are referring to. Yeah, no, you, you didn't actually butcher them. That's right. Um, assessment for learning or this um, idea of um, assessment for mastery or what we call mastery learning is this idea of learning to grow and to improve versus learning to showcase your performance. It comes from age-old work, the theories around goal orientation theory. Um, in goal orientation theory, there really were two pathways proposed, right? One was mastery orientation, one was performance orientation. Um, and the theory really got us as educators to think about how a learner approaches a situation, um, there will impact the way they think about it will impact their emotional or their cognitive tendency towards that particular event. So for example, that assessment event, which will then in turn impact their behavior. So, um, Carol Dweck was really the first person to sort of propose this idea that the learning goal orientation is focused, the person with that framework is focused on developing competence through expanding their abilities, and they will try to master challenging situations of which learning presents itself with challenges all the time, right? My Remember, my daughter's third grade teacher would always say, learning is not learning unless it feels uncomfortable. And so that, that wow, framework- Wow, your daughter just had a mic drop, Ariane. That was a- that was a beautiful, like, as in, like, she dropped, like, as in that was a very oh powerful gosh. statement. You were like, did she actually drop the mic? No, no, no. I thought something happened to No, 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 no. Right. I was just, I was complimenting your mic, yeah. your um, daughter and her yeah. mic drop. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah, thanks, Ira. And I think um, the, you know, Carol Dweck's 
other sort of framework was this idea of performance goal orientation, which is to demonstrate and validate one's competence by seeking favorable judgments and avoiding negative, like negative judgments or negative feedback. So you're really focused on doing well. You do not want to know if you're not doing well. And um, you will work really hard so you can avoid failure. So nobody will tell you that you were not doing well. And I think the problem with that particular mindset is it's not really focused on improvement. It's not focused on growth. And there's, um, even though this idea of mastery orientation was developed in adolescence, subsequent studies have been done in the medical school setting with learners. And our medical students do tend to be performance oriented. And it's not because that's who they are. It's because it's kind of the way they've been raised to be in the medical school system. Yeah. That's really comprehensive in outlining, you know, assessment for learning versus focus on performance. So with all that you know about this field and kind of this differentiation, if you were the mentor in this scenario, how would you advise a student um, in grounding your conversation or perhaps reducing some of the student anxiety around assessments? Uh, so Francis, uh, what I say depends on where the learner's at, what that setting is, the institutional belief in the value of assessment and the extent to which the institution places or, or that course or that curriculum places priority on that assessment. So, you know, if that student were at my institution now, it would be a very different conversation than if they were at another institution that, for example, doesn't have a tiered grading system in their clerkship, you know. So most institutions nationally do still continue to tier their learners into different grades, either honors, high honors, pass, fail, or honors, pass, fail. And they do still tend to weigh those multiple choice exams or those exams at the clerkship level very highly. And if a student's in that context, I would tell them that I realize that they are worried about the grade they're going to get because they are worried about, particularly if it's a clerkship that they're thinking of completing their residency in, how difficult that would be. I would let them know it's not the end-all be-all. There are still other opportunities to showcase your growth and your dedication to that particular specialty. But I would say that I would understand the predicament they're in and I would, I would definitely feel worried for them and worried for their well-being uh, because of how much is riding on that one exam, which then leads to that one grade and impacts their career opportunities. If that student was at my current institution where we uh, do not have a tiered grading system where we only do pass-fail in our clerkships, I would tell that student, you know, you need to worry about mastering that content. You need to make sure you can be the best clinician that you can be, and medical knowledge is foundational to that. But you know, you don't have to really worry about getting the high honors because ultimately this, this one test is not going to change that for you. So go home, read up, continue to read, ask questions, ask for feedback, get your clinical supervisors to give you as much feedback as possible and learn and improve. And that'll ultimately be what sets you up to be a great clinician. 
Wow, Ariane, I want you to be my mentor. I feel I feel very mentored right now. Um, and I think you highlighted a lot of things for uh, Sean as the kind of learner in this scenario, which is that there's many sources of feedback and there's many sources of assessment for learning. I think one of the sources that many of us have experiences with is evaluations, specifically around clinical assessments or kind of, um, you know, we use the rhyme structure at UCSF and other kind of um, domains of assessment for someone's clinical um, kind of uh, performance or a clinical experience. And I wonder, zooming into that evaluation and the various domains in those evaluations, there's been a lot of new ones, or maybe I'm speaking locally, where we think about kind of the advocacy domain that has come up um, in our assessment structure. And I just wonder how you see that particular assessment evolving? Because we've been talking about adaptation for a long time. Does that mean we're going to have, you know, the domain for, I don't know, how well you interact with artificial intelligence? I'm obviously spitballing, but, you know, uh, just do you see that kind of evaluation lengthening and growing as we think about various domains that might change as we assess learners? So that's a really great question, Ira. And actually, the question about artificial intelligence is is not at all out of the blue. I mean, if you speak with surgeons, that is where they're at in terms of their learning and their assessments. So I, I think it's a really legitimate question. I want to come back to a point I made earlier to answer your question, right? So I talked about professionalism, how there were societal events that then led the profession to understand that we have to be able to assess for professionalism because that is something we haven't done and it's led to a lot of problems in the long run. The same thing happened with communication skills, right? So all along, it was all about medical knowledge. And then one day, there were a series of studies that showed us that good communication skills among physicians was linked to patient adherence, patient satisfaction. And then all of a sudden, we as a profession began to acknowledge that we have to assess for that because it is so critical to the ultimate thing that we care about the most, which is patient outcomes. And I think advocacy is one of those areas that we are beginning to really recognize more as being a core value of the profession. So it's already been established that advocacy is uh, very important to practice. In the US, we don't actually have it as a core competency. But if you look at other countries like Canada, the CanMeds framework includes serving as a health advocate as a core physician role, alongside with being a medical expert, a good communicator. And there are countries nationally that actually ascribe to the Canadian, the CanMeds framework. So we know a lot of countries in Europe and in Asia also ascribe to that framework. So the problem is in the US, we do talk about it, but we don't actually assess for it. And, um, we do need to do that. So there is some really, really important work by Beth Griffiths and her team and Tali Ziv and her team, which has really, really pushed us to think about, you know, we know that being a physician advocate is a core part of what we expect of our graduates. So why are we not teaching about it? Why are we not assessing for it? And when we do do that, we are obviously attributing value to that particular competence. So to answer your question, and oh, and also one more thing, society has shifted a lot, right? So we understand how important that advocate role is as we think about what's been happening in all aspects of society. So uh, do I think it's here to say, I do think it's, I do think advocacy as a domain of assessment is here to say, I do think it's going to grow more over the next few years. I think how we begin to think about it and assess it will really expand 
further um, over the years. And it'll evolve just like every other assessment that we've had. I love that. I think being a physician, you know, you're part advocate, part leader, part clinician, part educator, and having advocacy as part of the assessment as such an essential thing. In addition to that, you know, what do we know about bias and inequity present in assessment? And how do we move towards a more equitable assessment system to think about how do we minimize bias, prompt equity? Are there any frameworks that you think of or any components that you think of when you're building more equity into an assessment system? Yeah. Um, so that has been an area of work that has been very close to my heart over the past, well, I began this work um, even in the K through 12 system and it continued sort of into here, thinking about what makes for equitable assessment. Um, it is very interesting. The work on that is very, very limited in the health professions. You know, I talked earlier about, um, you know, what do we need for, for a good assessment system, good practice, right? You know, things like direct observation, we know that. We know ongoing feedback's critical. We know that from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of publications in medicine. Continuity in relationships with your supervisors and your setting, very key to good assessment. And we've known very little about, okay, well, beyond that, really, is that is that all you need even for an equitable assessment system? And some of our work more recently has focused on that. And we've done a series of studies, both qualitative and quantitative, which have really pushed our learners and our faculty to think about, well, what's, what is equitable? And what we've learned in the process is that if you want an equitable system, number one, it has to be an assessment system that does have the best practices in place. It's got to have the feedback, got to have the direct observation. But there's a lot more that goes into creating an equitable system, particularly in the clinical setting. And um, in work that we've done recently um, in interviewing residents and students and also running a, a survey um, across multiple institutions in the U.S., that there are really six components that go into an equitable assessment system. Um, that is an assessment system that avoids comparison to peers, that values narrative assessment over and above ratings, uh, that focuses on contributions to patient care that go beyond medical knowledge. So medical knowledge is, is fundamental, but there's more to it than that, um, that it captures a learner's growth. We don't want to have somebody, you know, start medical school being a superstar and just stay that way. You know, that's what school's there for. It's there to train you. It's there to make you improve and grow. So an assessment system that values growth and assesses for it over time, an assessment system that teaches our educators, our clinical supervisors, how to mitigate bias, because we all hold biases in its human nature. It's a way of organizing the world we live in. So we have to acknowledge it and own it and learn when it's it's going to occur. And then an assessment system that appreciates a learner's identity, their background in their approach to patient care. Wow, Ariane, that's like the six, that's like the recipe for success, I feel like, uh, especially around equitable assessment structures. And I wonder, you know, you had mentioned the power of research in getting to that um, the, that answer and in help, helping systems adapt assessment systems. And I wonder, are there any other kind of key ingredients that you want to mention? Uh, because it sounds like the research got you to these six components of an equitable um, assessment structure. Is there anything else that helped you kind of get to that point or anything else that you kind of would feel like would uh, allow for an ideal assessment structure to occur that hasn't been mentioned yet besides the incredible body of research that you have contributed to? Um, you know, this is going to sound kind of generic and it's not meant to be that way, but 
It is the framework of always questioning our practices. I do think we, it's really, it's a part of the the research thinking, but it's more than that. It's that we are always looking at our data. We're continually questioning it and we're improving it, not just on the research end, but also on the practice as the, as people hands on, you know, um, doing our, our work day to day. And I think Ira, you know, this from leading an amazing course that, always included a lot of data sources and always looking at it to see what you were learning was what you were learning, questioning what you would do, change what you do. And I do think that that mentality is pretty critical to any work that we do. But I do think in particular assessment, because there is so much um, writing on assessment for our learners. Wow, Ariane, it sounds like you're doing a lot of these mini PDSA cycles to continuously (laughs) improve in the moment towards this optimal assessment structure. That's really impressive. Thank you. So thinking about, you know, assessment as a topic, you know, assessment can be a year-long course in some master's programs, and we're asking you to you know, just delve right in in this very short podcast and give us all the high yield pearls. So thinking about that, what are some of your high yield pearls or your main take home points for our listeners? Uh, A lot, (laughs) but I will sort of just bring together some of the things that I, that I think about that I've mentioned earlier. And I think about often, I, I think focusing on competence, focusing on values to society and the institution and what we assess developing assessment systems that do focus on competency attainment, but do hit uh, multiple. We do have multiple assessments getting at each of those that are frequent, that include both formative and summative assessments with, you know, that, that give a learner many opportunities for displaying their learning and their skills development. And then I think, you know, the six components of that equitable system, I, I do think those are focused particularly on the clinical setting, but I think there's a lot to be said about the values that they hold. For example, assessing for growth and valuing growth and including narrative assessment, no matter where along the continuum of education you are, are all very critical um, components of what I'd love for those dabbling in assessment or those thinking about it to consider. Wow, Ariana, I feel like I have the recipe for success for an ideal assessment uh, so. system. So <laughs> thank you for that. Is there anything that you uh, wanted to make sure to plug or to highlight for listeners? Um, maybe any of your work, anything that uh, kind of your you've been recently questioning or kind of that has led you to question mm-hmm. a la your your recent comment. Yeah, I do think looking at the recent work that's come out of UCSF um, and Kaiser on advocacy assessment um, is is definitely, um, this includes in particular, I think, Beth Griffiths' work, um, which looks at the continuum of advocacy, advocacy assessment, and, and what needs to be taught to make assessment more timely and opportune. I do think, um, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing on understanding how things like bias, stereotype, threat, and other components such as like that, which I didn't really talk about in this context um, implicitly, are important for institutions to think about in their assessment systems development. And I and I think ultimately the limited, very limited work that we currently have on what makes for equitable assessment is the other place that I would I would really want to underscore and emphasize and, and encourage others to think about that and build on that work. Ariane, thank you so much. I will also highlight something that you mentioned, which is in your kind of 
six keys for components for an equitable system, you mentioned the focus on kind of narrative assessment and valuing growth and kind of assessment structures that have that. And I will say if any listeners are out there wondering, oh my gosh, is there a podcast episode about narrative assessments or how to write those better? And you know, the answer to that is yes. Um, I just want to yes. plug in the in the section around plugging. I want to plug the uh, ninth episode from our Curbsiders Teach uh, series around conveying the learner's special gift, which is an episode with Susie Miner talking about best practices for written evaluation so that we can take everything that uh, Ariane has taught us and told us about um, equitable systems and really kind of put that into, into practice. Yeah. And Ariane, just one last question that's actually popped into my head as you've gone mm-hmm. through all these amazing pearls. So what if you're in charge of assessment and you want to change the assessment system to incorporate, you know, some of these measures of equity, you know, reducing bias, incorporating advocacy? How would you go about doing that, you know, in improving your own institution's assessment system? Yeah. I think the first, uh, that's a, that's a really, really good question and a topic for another in-depth conversation. But having been a part of that kind of institutional change, um, I think the first step is informing the institution, helping them understand what are the current advances in assessment and what we're learning and where we need to be. And I do think the second part is buy-in from the higher ups. There is a lot more that can be achieved quicker if not just everybody, but the leadership is on board, because I think that's where the sort of the venue for um, opportunities to improve will open up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Would love for you to, you know, come across the country and incorporate all of these kind of pearls (laughs) into the national assessment system. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. We need a tour. We need a tour of Ariane across the country yeah. to be like, this is how we improve. Yeah. Talk about your current state, yeah. get buy-in, and kind of start to make changes towards an equitable system. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of schools are thinking about that, and I think our larger organizations, like the National Board, like the Association of American Medical Colleges, are very much um, at, in that space. They are definitely thinking about this and doing what they can to change. Awesome. Thank you, Ariane. Any last uh, last minute pearls that popped into your head that we should share? No, thank you for having me. Thank you for highlighting this important topic um, and uh, making sure it receives airtime. Of course. Thank you so thank much. You. Wow, Francis, what an episode. I My mind is still churning over all the things we learned. Just wondering if you have any kind of take-home points or things that you might incorporate into your practice or into your kind of uh, routine now that we've heard this from Ariane. Yeah, I feel like, you know, Ariane really tried to concisely give us all the pearls in assessment. And I'm going to think about, you know, my learners a little differently. You know, sometimes we think that multiple choice exams are perhaps the only way or maybe the gold standard in assessment. But I might think about how we can make our system a little bit more equitable, incorporate more of a growth mindset, and how to change it so that we're more learner-centered and focusing on the assessment of learning rather the outcomes of performance. What about you, Ira? Yeah, I love that. I think her focus on the fact that we need assessment structures that adapt is key. And I think 
the work that she's put out around kind of those quality um, or I should say good practices um, in assessment structure and then those equitable features, making sure that we avoid comparisons to peers, that we value narrative assessment, that we value growth in a system that teaches faculty to avoid or kind of acknowledge biases. I think I just realized, wow, we have a lot of growth. I have a lot of growth to do as a um, as a contributing member to our assessment structure. So thank you, Dr. Tarani. Well, this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Clara Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Also, a special thanks to our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram, John Ong on Twitter, and Carly on our website. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Francis Yu. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. Until next time, I've been Dr. Ira Krasinovskaya.